Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. The southern border of the United States is in chaos. Millions of people from all over the world are crossing each year, mostly illegally, but still allowed to remain in and be transported free throughout the country. Matters are quickly coming to a head. The crisis has strained our infrastructures, exacerbated our bitter political divisions, and called into question the ability and indeed willingness of the federal government to control American borders. At the same time, the system of legal immigration is strained, with people waiting to come here lawfully facing complicated bureaucratic processes and long delays. Why is this happening? What can be done to improve the situation? Can America remain sovereign and treat those coming here illegally for a better life with respect and dignity and still maintain order at the border? My guest today has answers. Mark Rikorian, a nationally recognized expert on immigration issues, has served as executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies since 1995. His knowledge and expertise in the immigration field are sought by Congress, as well as the mainstream press and new media. He has published articles in numerous outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, and elsewhere. He is a contributor at National Review Online and has appeared on all major cable and broadcast news networks. Mr. Krikorian is the author of the books The New Case Against Immigration, Both Legal and Illegal, and How Obama is Transforming America Through Immigration. His most recent co-authored publication is Open Immigration, Yay and Nay. Mr. Krikorian holds a master's degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and a bachelor's degree from Georgetown University. He spent two years at Yerevan State University in then-Soviet Armenia. Mark, welcome to Humanize. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You're trained in law and diplomacy. What sparked your interest in the immigration issue? Uh, it's a good question. I kind of, I mean, most things you dumb into in life, you know, you stumble into them. Um, I mean, I'm my, I was born here. My parents were born here, but I grew up in a very sort of immigrant milieu. Uh, I w- it was high school before I really realized intellectually that there were old people who spoke without accents. Um, you know, so, um, that's kind of what, I mean, that's sort of what I came out of, but at the same time, the, um, s- sovereignty and of the United States and the ability of the United States to assimilate, successfully assimilate newcomers was something that always concerned me. And um, 
I kind of fell into it. Yeah, you know, we, you know, there's a cliche that uh, that the United States is a nation of immigrants, but I think it's true. My grandmother uh, came here on the boat in 1910 at the age of 16. You know, she was Italian from she came from Italy and uh, had a thick Italian accent my whole life. So I think all, uh, you know families have strong immigration stories but what's happening now is different isn't it yeah it's different uh but it's different mainly because we're different in other words the united states has undergone positive and negative changes but significant changes since the last big wave of immigration we have a post-industrial knowledge-based economy now so the economic consequences of large-scale immigration is very different we have a welfare state. Uh, and, you know, look, I'm personally a conservative. My organization, Center for Immigration Studies, is kind of ambidextrous, but I'm a conservative. I want a tighter, more, you know, responsible system of social provision for the poor, but that's an integral part of a modern society. That didn't exist a century or two centuries ago. And with modern transportation and communications, the world is smaller in a way that simply wasn't the case before. So, when you know your grandmother came from Italy, it's not like she could hop on a plane and go back for a long weekend and yeah. you know visit her cousin or something. Uh, people used to go back even then, but it was a more difficult process. You couldn't check, you know, check in with the FaceTime or something with your relatives abroad. There's this uh, example I used in a in my um, book, the the uh, case against new case against immigration. From I got it from a sociology study of Dominican immigrants, people from the Dominican Republic who lived in Boston, a particular neighborhood. In other words, from one village to a different kind of village in Boston. And she talked about one mother who was there, left the kids back home with the grandpa, grandma, and called home every night to check her kids' homework. Hmm. Now, more power to her. You know what I mean? That's obviously yeah. a good mother. That's not the kind of thing that could have happened in the past. And it's the kind of thing that slows the process of reorienting your psychological and emotional connections to a new country and interferes with immigration. So the whole point here is that the immigrants aren't really that different. This difference is sure, but it's not really that. It's that the receiving society is different in good ways and bad ways, but it's different. Well, that's very interesting. I never uh, considered that before. What is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies? Uh, we're, our goal is to examine and critique the impacts of immigration on the United States. I mean, we're unapologetically skeptical of mass immigration, but there isn't sort of some magic party line, you know, some level of immigration that's ideal. One, what we really do is, in, in one area, we do a lot of number crunching, uh, but we're not generating new numbers. We are asking of data from the Census Bureau and elsewhere questions that nobody else wants to ask. Oh, For instance, we did a significant report recently. It it's, should still be on our homepage, uh, cis.org, on welfare use among immigrants. Nobody else even bothers to ask the question, and yet there's a whole Census Bureau survey that uh, on what's called a Survey of Income and Program Participation. And there's data about you know uh, people's places of birth and all of that stuff. Nobody bothers to ask. That's the kind of thing we try to do, ask questions that aren't being asked. So would it be fair to say that it's journalistic and it's um, 
uh, data driven in terms of your studies and your and your position papers? Well, we're a think tank, so we're a hybrid yeah. between academia and journalism. You know what I mean? So, um, so yes, and we also have other people, experts in the administrative aspects of immigration, because the Census Bureau just asks people, you know, where were you born? Do you use welfare? How many of you are there? How old are you? That kind of stuff. But there's also the data generated by the agencies themselves, how many people were deported, how many of them had criminal records, all of that kind of stuff. And so we kind of do both. We look at the uh, like demographic economic data on the one hand, but also the bureaucratic administrative data on the other. I did a little research on on the organization. And of course, uh, you have opponents. Uh, one is the Southern Poverty Law Center, which uh, for some reason has branded um, your organization a hate group. Um, obviously you disagree with that, I would assume. And I would like your response to that. Yeah. It's a, it's a politically driven name calling is what it is. Um, and the SPLC, it's the Southern Poverty Law Center is, uh, a, is a participant in a, in the immigration debate. And so they're using earlier credibility they had when they went after the Ku Klux Klan and what have you as a weapon in a political fight. So, I mean, the center is not interested in, uh, in, it does not favor immigration policy that's based on ethnicity or race or religion or any of that stuff. Uh, and yet, you know, this is what the SPLC is about. One of the, they had a very thin uh, justification for their claim. One of the claims was that we distributed articles by people who were bad. And some of them really probably were bad, you know, Jew haters and what have you. But that's not the stuff we distributed. We distributed articles all across the board from the New York Times op-eds to, you know, some individual, not cranks maybe, but people who turned out to be cranks. And they considered that to be uh, what results, something that only a hate group would do. So they're trying to sort of police what you're allowed to say. And, uh, you know, we aren't going to go along with that. By distributed, you mean um, you just... Well, we had a, yeah, we had a roundup, an email roundup of like opinion, immigration opinion in the past right. week. So it or wasn't two endorsement; weeks. it was just taking no, opinions no, was, all over the place, whatever it might be, and and distributing it. And for that, they've called you a hate group. Exactly, and also one of the guys who's a fellow at the center, uh, not an employee, but somebody who once in a while writes for us, uh, went to a Christmas party. Literally, this is it. Went to a Christmas party from another group that they considered a hate group. <laughs> and therefore, that makes us a hate group. It's, it's that kind of sort of tendentious stuff. And, um, you know, it does make a certain amount of difference uh, in the sense that it makes it harder for, you know, NPR and what have you to have us on. But, you know, even after that came out, I did an NPR talk show. Remember the Diane Reem show? This was her successor, 1A, it was called by Joshua Johnson. And uh, he had a whole episode on it. and. SPLC, he invited them on, not even against me. He said, look, you guys can just come on and say your piece and then hang up and then we'll have Krikorian on. They wouldn't do it. Of course. So, um, so anyway, uh, it's, you know, it's had some effect, but not nearly the impact that they expected. And now they're sort of throwing it around, throwing the term around everywhere. So at this point, among conservatives especially, but really anybody who's kind of heterodox um, and doesn't buy into the mainstream narrative that the left is pushing, Everybody's a hate group. So once everybody's a hate group, nobody's a hate group. But unfortunately, yeah. there really are groups out there that have, you know, 
that are hateful. Yeah, and as you said, uh, back in the day, the SPLC did tremendous work against the Aryan Nation, the Ku Klux Klan, and so forth. Right. Morris Dees sued the Aryan Nation out of existence, and uh, right. that and was even, good. Even and, then, it really was more a business thing for Dees, but at least he was making, he was doing well by doing good. Now they're doing well by doing bad, you know, doing <laughs> evil. So uh, <laughs> well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's you saying it, not me, yeah, but I, I catch your point. Um, let's get back to the illegal immigration question. It's been around for decades. In fact, Eisenhower, I was kind of surprised to uh, learn, faced an illegal immigration crisis. And he, I think he deported 3 million people. Yeah, they called it, and this was a mainstream term at the time, they called it Operation Wetback, yeah. um, which, you know, is a slur now. Uh and but even then, it's I mean it is a slur, but it's just a translation from the Spanish term that's commonly used. But um, the three million people, it was only some of them were deported. It was a lot of them left once it became clear that the government was cracking down, and it was a result of um, leaking out, as it were, of the farm worker program. There was something back then called the Bracero program, right. which is a Spanish word for like arms. In other words, these were strong arms. They're all Mexican farm workers of what it was. And that generated lots of illegal immigration because guest worker programs always bring in and um, other people who aren't legally authorized and other people who come in and then just don't leave. So it created, this legal program created large-scale illegal immigration and this operation wetback reduced it quite significantly because they, you know, unapologetically were deporting people and others said, you know, let's get out while the getting's good. Let's get out one step ahead of the law. The thing is, yes, he cre- he uh, uh, faced an illegal immigration crisis, but it was a, like a tiny phenomenon, a tiny problem compared to the kinds of things we're facing now. And when did it, uh, the, the problem of illegal immigration again reassert itself to the point that Ronald Reagan was grappling with the uh, issue 30 years after Eisenhower? Right. The, um, it was really not until the 70s that it became a significant issue again. Um, and really from 1964 or five, when the guest worker program from Mexico was ended, illegal immigration took a good 10 years or more to kind of sort of bounce back, as it were, and more people started coming in. And in 1979, there was a presidential commission called the Hesburgh Commission. Um, Remember President uh, Hesburgh of Notre Dame? He was a uh, sort of a public intellectual, but was pretty prominent uh, head of uh, Notre Dame. He was the chairman of that commission, and they called for um, various measures to limit illegal immigration. For instance, um, requiring, uh, making the employment of illegal immigrants illegal. Because until 1986, and that was part of the deal that Ronald Reagan got in that big amnesty that was passed in 86, was that for the first time ever, it became unlawful to hire illegal aliens. Because before that, being an illegal alien was illegal, but if employers hired you, even if they knew that you were illegal, they were off the hook. And so um, that was that was recognized much earlier, even than 1979, when this report was issued, as a weakness. And that was one of the things that Reagan, the bill, bill that Reagan signed 
um, tried to address and make it illegal to employ illegal immigrants. Unfortunately, it never was enforced. Nobody had any interest in enforcing it. So the amnesty part of that big 1986 deal went through, but the other shoe, the follow-up was supposed to be prohibiting the employment of illegal immigrants. And the enforcement of that was lackadaisical at best. It's interesting. I remember that era. And um, uh, I remember, uh, for some reason, I had to, I was applying for some kind of job and I had to prove I was an American citizen. And then later on, uh, I found out that a legal secretary that I had hired when I was in my own law firm with a couple of other guys, and she had, she was English, and she called me and she said, I need you to verify that I was employed because I was here illegally. And I said, what? Oh, <laughs> because back, you know, in the, when I hired her, there was no requirement right. that we check that and would never, it was not something we, we thought about too much. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I, she was a, quite a good secretary and I, uh, and she said she had not been able to go home for like, uh, eight years or 10 years or something to see her family and so forth. Right. And I signed the form and, and I assume she, uh, uh became accepted, right. but that was supposed to end it. You were supposed to, as I recall, you're supposed, you were supposed to have what is sometimes called amnesty. That is the people who were here illegally were then allowed to go through a legalization process. Correct. Right. Yeah. And, and perhaps even lead to citizenship. And at the same time, the border was supposed to be enforced so that there weren't so many people coming in. And, and of course, the other way that people come in is by uh, coming here illegally in a visa and then not going home. Which right. Then Over, overstaying, they call it. Overstaying, overstaying a, visa. a visa. Right. Uh, and which is what she did. And uh, as you said, only part of the bill was actually enforced. And then we ended up back in the same soup. Is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, people blame Reagan for that. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm a big Reagan fan. I, uh, as a side, I was, he's the first person I ever voted for when I was, you know, came of age to vote. And during the reelection, this is nothing to do with immigration, but during his reelection, I actually voted for him absentee ballot from inside the Soviet Union. <laughs> that's um, that's kind of yeah. rich, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Now they didn't, now th they held the ballot until after the day after election day on purpose. And they said, oh, it got torn up in the uh, machine. You know, I mean, they couldn't even just say, look, we're the Soviet <laughs> Union. We opened your mail. It's like, anyway. Yeah, you're not voting for Ronald <laughs> Reagan. <laughs> but the ballot was still intact and the envelope to send it back. So I listened to Voice of America and knew that he had won. So when they gave me the ballot, the director of the dorm, I said, okay, thanks. I went, unfolded it, voted for Reagan, circled it, underlined it, and had arrows pointing at it, and then folded it up and mailed it because I knew they're going to tear it open again. So that's hilarious. That was, it was kind of my way of saying, we win, you lose. That's hilarious. Um, but anyway, my point is that uh, that was the first amnesty we had done, and it made sense theoretically. In other words, clear the mess that you made from bad policy in the past by amnestying people. And going forward, making sure you don't have this level of magnitude of problem in the future. So I, I mean, I don't blame anybody who voted for that. It was a bitter pill for the um, immigration enforcement people to, to swallow, which ironically at the time chiefly meant the AFL-CIO. They were the main opponents of amnesty. They've flipped since then. Um, but it made sense. It was, it was the kind of thing that, okay, let's, you know, it's worth a try. It's pretty clear that the supporters of the legalization part 
had no intention of honoring the rest of the deal because four years after the bill was passed in 1990, once everybody who was going to get legalized had been legalized, um, the Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch and what was then still called the National Council of La Raza got together and tried to repeal the ban on hiring illegal immigrants. In other words, they got their half of the deal and they tried to welsh on the other half. And believe it or not, Coretta Scott King is who stopped them because she said, no, 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 this ban on hiring illegal immigrants is good for black Americans because it you know, strengthens their position in the labor market. And she put out an open letter with various other black leaders. Walter Washington, remember him, uh, former mayor of uh, Washington, D.C., and others signed it. And that was the end of that. But Kennedy and his uh, ilk got what they wanted in the end anyway, because even though the law remained on the books, they, nobody enforced it, uh, Republican or Democrat. I, I've been, you know, this is not my area of expertise to say the least, but but I hear people say that um, the left wants illegal immigration because it will bring in people that eventually will become, they think, left-wing voters and the right wants illegal immigration because it will hold wages down, which is, of course, why the AFL-CIO would have opposed, right? Um, opposed, uh, and and Coretta Scott King opposed it. I, is that a cliche, or is there some truth to that? It's both. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's a partial truth. It's not a. It's not the whole thing. Um, especially for the. I mean, for the right, there are elements that clearly see it as uh, sort of the business oriented folks clearly see it as a way to hold wages down and weaken unions and basically, uh, you know, um, lower the bargaining power of workers. And then there's also a sort of libertarian tendency, a kind of don't tell me what to do. I'll hire anybody I want sort of element on the right. That's gotten weaker, quite frankly, but is there. And, and there are libertarians who don't even believe in borders, I believe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the sort of Cato Institute Reason Magazine libertarians. You know, in the rest of the country, most of the people who call themselves libertarians are what you might call folk libertarians. In other words, they're patriotic Americans. They just don't want the government to tell them what to do. They're conservatives who aren't religious. That's really what defines... <laughs> ordinary people who call themselves libertarian. But in D.C., Cato Institute is a think tank in D.C., Reason Magazine's a libertarian organization out in L.A. They, they are ideologically f f sort of full-spectrum libertarians, and they do not believe in the legitimacy of the nation-state or borders. Uh, and so, But that's an irrelevant tendency except in Washington, really. Um, in other words, you don't see that in the country. On the left, though, the idea of importing voters is, you know, it's real, I guess. I mean, they acknowledge that. But uh, and in addition to that, it's sort of importing a client class too, uh, a group of people who need mediating, you know, people to uh, negotiate with the broader society and the left sees itself in that role. But it's actually beyond that. This is why I say it's a partial truth, is that the left has truly radicalized on immigration over the past couple of decades. Trump probably supercharged it, but it was happening before Trump. And this is where they share a, a view of immigration with the libertarians, which is that they don't see immigration limits as morally legitimate. Um, 
in other words, the immigration law is a kind of Jim Crow in the perspective of the left, or Jaimito Cuervo, you might say in Spanish. Um, and so they just don't see the American people as having the right to say no to people uh, who want to move here. And um, because of that, there's not, it's harder to kind of split the difference. Compromise politics is possible when you have people basically agreeing on sort of broad outcomes or broad outlines, but they, you know, will cut a deal around the 50-yard line. The left isn't on the 50-yard line anymore. They're not even, they're in a soccer field. They're not even on the same playing field anymore as much of the rest. And again, I don't mean all Democratic voters. I'm talking about the leadership class. In the progressives, uh, the people who are on the far left of of, uh, politics. And even the less progressive Democrats at the national level and even state level, they have a hard time saying, yes, of course we should have border control uh, because um, so much of their activist constituency has just gone off the deep end on immigration. I wrote a piece for National Review years ago. Uh, Were you writing when Catherine Lopez was still editor? She's the one who brought me in there, yeah. Right. So I wrote a piece for her called uh, Open Borders Uber Alice. And she was like, no, 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 you can't call it that. She came up with a different title. She was right, right, Mark. I guess, okay. (laughs) But, but But the point was still valid, and is that any time an a, a um, interest group on the left, um, the the, in, the constituency or concerns of that group conflicted with open immigration. They always sacrificed their own interests to open immigration, whether it was black organizations, labor unions, um, ACLU. The I led off with the ACLU story. Um, the there was this gadfly immigration activist, you know, control activist in New York City. And he put up a billboard in Manhattan with a picture of two cute little kids and said, immigration will double America's population in our lifetimes. Is that a good idea or not? And then said, visit projectusa.org or whatever. So it's a pretty anodyne thing. The city government of New York went to the owner of the billboard and said, you take that down or we are going to health inspect you up the wazoo and put you out of business. An explicit case of political suppression of speech. He went to the local ACLU and they said, yeah, you're right. It is obviously a political suppression of speech, but we got a lot of immigrant rights people in our organization. So we're going to have to pass. So this is the group that defended Nazis waving their obscenities in the face of Holocaust survivors, at least though based on a kind of consistent principle. But sorry, if it open if it conflicts with open immigration, no go. Yeah, the ACLU of Skokie, Illinois, uh, right. ha- is no longer there. Let's get to the present moment. Uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security is Alejandro Mayorkas. And he's repeatedly testified, and I've seen clips of it in Congress, that the borders are secure. <laughs> yeah. Is that in any way true? No, it's not. It's, uh, I mean, he really is the Baghdad Bob of this administration. If you remember from the Iraq war, you know, uh, the, um, the uh, Americans the, are nowhere near and behind him. Yeah. You can see the tanks coming yeah, through no the Yeah, there are American tanks Iraq. in Baghdad and they were yeah. driving behind him. I mean, right. So anyway, this is my orcus. And, um, uh, this is why, frankly, there's a real push in the house to impeach him. And there hasn't been a cabinet member impeached in ages. 
Uh, and but you know he clearly deserves it. Now he's not. It's not like that. He's taking money. He's not taking bribes. He's not a spy for a foreign government. But he is explicitly ignoring the law because of uh, the political objectives. The, the it, it, statute, are you saying that he's violating his oath of office and refusing to administer the laws uh, yes. as the executive is supposed to? Absolutely, and and it's a it's a flagrant case. Whether that's true for Biden himself, you know, because there's a impeachment uh, inquiry now going on. I don't know. That's that's not my area. I have no idea. But Mayorkas absolutely is. Look, the immigration law specifically says someone who enters without inspection or overstays a visa or shows up at a um, port of entry and has no passport and says, "I'm I'm asking for asylum. The law specifically says that person is to be detained during the entire course of his, you know, the entire process of his asylum claim until one way or the other, there's a decision. Um, The whole point of that was to prevent asylum claims being a gambit to be released into the United States. They just don't do it. Um, And now they say, having created such a huge problem, oh, it's too big to deal with. There's too many people. We can't detain them all. They're essentially like the guy who kills his parents and then begs for mercy because he's an orphan. They've created this problem and they say, oh, it's too big to solve. And uh, so what they're using is something called parole, which in the immigration context is, is in the law, it's, it's, it's in the statute, but it's supposed to be used for you know individual extraordinary cases where someone has a health emergency or their grandmother's going to die tomorrow and there is neither time to get a visa, nor maybe they don't even qualify for even a visitor visa, or they need to testify to hear it, say. Uh, and there's a, you know, they have criminal convictions, so they'd be barred from getting a visa. In those kind of narrow, specific instances, the executive is allowed to parole somebody in. You take them to the courtroom, they testify, whatever it is, and then you take them back to where they came from. It's a necessary kind of wiggle room that you have to have. Well, this guy is using it to release into the United States millions of people. Probably at this point, over probably a million and a half people they have paroled into the country. They won't give you exact statistics on it. And that's a, a flagrant abuse of the law. And they've gotten away with it. You know, there's states that sue to try to stop them. And um, Texas sued. And this past year, in 2023, Supreme Court ruled that, yeah, states don't have standing to sue on releasing illegal immigrants into the country. So basically nobody has standing. and they Except can get, it's the a, federal government and they refuse to do it. And they refuse to do it. So it's, it's something that requires a political solution, not a legal one, is basically what they said. Yeah, you know, um, I've always, this is beyond the scope of this uh, show, but one of the problems I've noticed is that if the executive of any uh, jurisdiction just refuses to comply with his or her oath of office, there's very little that can be done about it. If a mayor refuses to uh, perform his or her services, if a DA, which we have seen, refuses to prosecute crime, there really is very little that can be done because the system depends on the good faith uh, compliance with one's oath for it to work. Yeah. So just going back to Eisenhower real quick, uh, in Little Rock, after Brown versus Board of Education, there was an attempt to prevent an, the integration of a school. Right. Eisenhower didn't want to do it, 
but he sent in the National Guard because he right. was fulfilling his oath of office. Right. And that, I think, is the difference today be, uh, from today than, say, back uh, uh, in Eisenhower's era. We see increasingly that um, executives and attorneys general, both left and right, are beginning to refuse to uh, administer laws with which they disagree. And I think, you know, you put your finger on the oath of office issue because what is an oath? You're swearing. It's a promise. Yeah, but it's not just a promise. You're swearing that promise before God. Now, the Constitution allows you to make a, whatever it's called. Affirmation. Like Quakers wouldn't do it, an affirmation. Right. But most people just do an oath, but they kind of view it as an affirmation. In other words, they don't, they don't believe in God for the most part anyway. So what difference does it make? You see what I mean? In other words, and they, they don't have any shame very often. I mean, shame is something the left no longer really uh, worries about. And in general, it's not even just them. Uh, so my point is, it's like, what are you going to do about it? Which is why, you know, it probably is necessary. And this is a broader question, but applies to immigration too, that um, to provide additional avenues. Because remember, was it San Francisco's DA who was recalled? Yes, recently. Remember, yeah. Well, a recall, that's an issue that at the state or local level, you know, some places have it, some places don't. More places need recall as a uh, way to deal with this issue. And the other thing is that more statutes and immigration statutes need this too, need to uh, create, need to allow violate, certain violations of the law to be a cause of action so that people would automatically have standing and you wouldn't have to make these convoluted arguments to try to get standing to bring a case in court. In terms of uh, Secretary Mayorkas, I had never heard of him before he became the Secretary of Homeland Security. What is his background? He was the number two person at DHS under Obama. Oh, so I didn't he's know been that. in this issue for a while. He's an attorney. And actually, under Obama, he started out as the head of USCIS, Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the part of Homeland Security that does visas and green cards and what have you. And then the second half of the administration, he was the number two person in the whole department. So he has history in that. And he's an, he's an attorney um, who's uh, was his Cuban background himself. in immigration before he went into government service? Yeah, yeah. He was in immigration before that. I forget exactly where he worked now before he went into government service. But yes, he was in, he, he was in immigration for all along. Let's switch just briefly to legal immigration. Um, there are, of course thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands probably of people who want to immigrate here legally, as my millions. grandmother did. Millions. And millions, right. And there is a process for that, which is difficult and takes a long time. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but please describe what it takes to come here as a, a foreigner who wants to immigrate to the United States. The, um, it is complicated and it can take a long time. There's no question about it. Because there's way more demand than there's ever going to be supply. That's the basic issue. Um, and so people arguing for increases in immigration or even people justifying illegal immigration say that, well, there's no other way for them to come. So they were forced to come illegally. It's like, well, no, if you don't qualify, you don't get in, period. You know, um, and so most people who immigrate legally do so are able to do so because they have relatives here. In other words, there are various categories. If you're obviously married to a U.S. citizen, if you're the sibling, if you have, if you're the uh, adult child 
of a U.S. citizen, or, or there's all kinds of categories like that. The one that is backed up the most is the si- adult siblings of adult U.S. citizens. And uh, depending on the country, if you're from the Philippines and you're applying like that, it could be a 20-plus year wait, which means that that category doesn't work. Yeah. In other words, either you need essentially unlimited immigration, because if you increase it a little bit, then more people will fill that, and there'll be new new backlogs once that's filled up. It's kind of like adding extra lanes to the highway. You know, in five years, it's just as backed up as it was before, and you have to add more lanes. So either we either we need to dramatically increase immigration, or uh, probably more like end immigration limits altogether, which is what the other side of this debate wants, or we need to get rid of some of these categories. Because we're over-promising and under-delivering. So you've got to decide, are you you going to rein in your promises or you're going to expand dramatically what you're delivering? So most people get here, they get green cards. Green card is the shorthand term for a lawful permanent resident. It's not an American yet, but is on track if they want to after a certain amount of time and jump through some hoops to become a citizen if they want. Most people do it that way. There's a smaller category of employment-based uh, visas is what they're called. And some of those people are like genuine Einstein folks that even I'm for letting in, but most of them are not. Uh, you know, they're sort of regular talents um, and they're not particularly special. Uh, is that the H41 visa? Something no, the like H1B, H1B is a temporary visa, ostensibly, but it's really kind of turned into a stepping stone to a permanent visa. And most people who get H-1B visas are doing it in order to get a foot in the door and try to get here permanently. Um, And the third sort of broad component of how people immigrate legally is humanitarian visas. In other words, either they're refugees that we bring from overseas or they're asylum recipients. The term for that is asylees, which is sort of an ugly kind of weird term, but it's parallel to refugee. Those are people who come here illegally, but are given essentially refugee status. And those people can get green cards. And then the fourth smallest part is what we what they call the diversity visa lottery. There's actually a lottery for people from the not who are not from the top countries of immigration. So no Mexico, no UK, no Philippines. There's only 12 or 13 countries that are excluded. All the other hundred and whatever that would be, 80 countries in the world, people can apply for this diversity visa lottery. Millions apply, 50,000 a year get green cards. And uh, it's the most Mickey Mouse part of our immigration system. We're, whatever whatever you think of it, it just it doesn't make sense at all. So, well, Most of the people who are coming here now are claiming refugee status. And once they're in and, and, and they, they're supposed to be given, and often aren't, I know, um, a hearing date, does that mean they are now legally in the country? No, they're still deportable or removable is the technical term. It's just that if the um, Biden administration, for instance, gave them this parole that I mentioned before, yeah. they actually do have a work permit. So they're, it's kind of a weird, it, they're like quasi-illegal and quasi-legal. They're illegal immigrants who were deportable, but they have a work permit and a social security number. So they're in this gray zone and the what in the, the administration basically i think the people working in it see see it as a sort of 
first step to getting them in here permanently. In other words, once they're here, and if they're here long enough, if they have a hearing date four, five, six years, 10 years sometimes in the future, um, they figure, well, they'll have kids, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll develop equities, as they call them, and then they won't be able to be deported. So they will have created facts on the ground, as it were. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be difficult to for another administration to unwind what the Biden people have done here. It's not impossible, but it's not, they're not going to be able to get all of those people back out of the country. It's just become now, when too we th- big a problem. When we think of people who are coming here across the southern border, of course, we've seen images and pictures of, uh, uh, you know, caravans and, and they, they're uh, the typical stereotypical uh, person what might be from a uh, Latin American or South American country who doesn't have skills. But we're also beginning to see people from China, Pakistan, India, and all around the world, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's no question about it. Now, look, the stereotype, which was true of illegal immigrants, really 20 years ago, was single Mexican men coming to the United States to work, you know, used to be just farm work. Now it's, you know, construction, all kinds of stuff. That started the change. And in the early aughts or whatever, no, the early tens, you know, 2012, 13, 14, Central Americans became a big part of the illegal flow. That was a relatively new thing. Um, Since then, the majority of the illegal immigrants now crossing the southern border are neither Mexican nor Central American. Uh, they're from South America and the Caribbean, but also, as you suggest, China, India, a uh, lot of Africans, interestingly enough. I mean, um, just in the news recently, there's a big flow coming through southern Arizona. And there's, there is a very large, kind of suspiciously large number of people from Guinea in Africa um, who are coming through there. I was in a different part, in western part of Arizona, um, Yuma, uh, this spring. And during the day, we were visiting the area where the wall is and there's a gap and people come through it. There was an Angolan family waiting there who had lived for many years in Brazil. Uh, and just decided that because Biden was letting people in, they were going to trade up and come to the United States. Uh, so, so yeah, there's people from all over. One of our um, analysts, Todd Benzman, he's a former intelligence analyst with the Texas Department of Public Safety and a former foreign correspondent before that. Uh, he actually has gone down to the border, gone to Costa Rica as well. He's talked to people from... Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan coming over in large numbers. When I was in Arizona, in at the Arizona border uh, early, last year, there was a whole group of people from Georgia, not Atlanta, but Tbilisi, um, which in Armenian is Tiflis, and it was an Armenian city before Stalin got in. But anyway, uh, they weren't Armenian. I asked them, so I spoke to them in Russian a little bit. They were persecuted. They uh, had round trip tickets from uh, from Paris to Cancun. And um, they uh, took the bus from Cancun up to the border and crossed the border because they can get away with it. So why not? This implies, though, with the, the number of people from all over the world, a, a great deal of organization to move the numbers you're talking about. I mean, we're talking about literally a couple of million a year. Yep. 
And that is not something that can be done haphazardly because you have to feed people. You have to provide shelter for people. You have, I know they're walking and I know they get on a train and so forth and there are buses, but it sounds to me like this is not just a haphazard thing where refugees are kind of streaming across and staggering and finally making it, but that there's actually a huge business concern in getting people uh, human trafficked in essence. Right. Yeah. Smuggled because trafficking, smuggling a little different. There's a lot of trafficking too. Trafficking is when people are taken advantage of, kidnapped, tricked, that sort of thing. Smuggling is when you as the illegal immigrant are part of the conspiracy. You're paying somebody. Both of those is happening. Most of them are smuggled, but you're right. There's a huge business infrastructure here. The the thing I try to a dis, uh, try to warn people off from is to imagine this is, you know, um, George Soros in his mountain lair pulling his strings and coordinating it. It's not coordinated. Yeah. The opportunity is there. This is self a self organized mass multi billion dollar business um, because you've got smugglers all over. They're entrepreneurs for the most part, and you know some of them will specialize in illegal aliens from Tajikistan and others from Haiti and you know that sort of thing. So yes, there's enormous amount of money being made here, but um, it's it's almost it, you know it's entrepreneurial because the opportunity is there to get into the country because of this administration and the demand to do it is there, and so these folks are basically. They're capitalists. They're trying to, you know, connect the demand with the supply, as it were. And uh, that yeah, makes it harder to uh, to prevent, doesn't it? Because it's it not this long, this huge organization like uh, um, uh, Shell Oil, you know, right. uh, Immigrants Are Us. It's small groups of people who have organized businesses and human, traf- and human uh, smuggling. Yes, uh, lots of them, thousands of different ones. And so the government you know, goes after smuggling rings when they can. And, you know, that's good. And there's a certain, you know, that will work sometimes. But if the demand is there because they can get away with it, people are going to come forward and meet that demand. You know, you can't look at these images of people who are desperate for a better life, which is why most of them are coming here. And I'm sure there are some nefarious actors as well. Uh, But you can't look at them without having deep sympathy uh, uh, for their, that they would go to such a a length, which has to be very dangerous as well, um, to get to the country. Uh, How can we honor people's unique dignity as human beings, equal moral worth and so forth, and at the same time say, you know, this is just untenable uh, for the country, is there a way to to do both at the same time? I think there is, um, because to go back to the beginning of your question, most of them are not actually desperate. They are coming for a better life. There's no question about. Obviously, I mean, you know, there's a, there's people in there that are terrorists and what have you, but the vast majority is ordinary working stiffs trying mm-hmm. to upgrade, you know, their quality of life. Um, but uh, the fact is that. If you were actually seeking asylum, fleeing for your life, you would grab whichever, you know, you're a drowning man, you're going to grab whatever life preserver is available. These people have passed through multiple countries. 
not just Mexico, but often many other countries where if they were truly desperate, that's where they should be applying. And doesn't the asylum. international law require if you are seeking asylum to stay in the first country that's safe? No, it does not require that. It uh. allows um, the, there's a UN convention on this, uh, the refugee convention signed in 1951 that says illegal immigrants have to be considered for asylum provided they come directly from the country where they claim to be persecuted. And the fact is, that's kind of difficult to do in the United States because you're going to fly here. You're flying here from Heathrow Airport or Charles <laughs> de Gaulle. Yeah. Um, or if you're walking here, you're getting here through Mexico. And Mexico has a whole asylum bureaucracy. In fact, Mexico is the number three country in the world for asylum applicants after the U.S. and Germany. So, and just as sort of, you know, to give some... To put in context what a lot of these um, people coming across the border are about, our guy, Ted Todd Benzman, talked in, I think he was in Costa Rica, to a Haitian guy, a bunch of Haitians there, making their way to our, our border. And this Haitian, all of them, in fact, almost all of them, had been living for years in Chile and Brazil. They had work permits there. Their children were born there and had passports. In fact, I think I have a Brazilian passport around here somewhere from of a Chilean kid. So he talked to this guy. He was a single young man. And Todd said, so why did you go to Chile from Haiti? And he said, well, life's a thousand times better in Chile than in Haiti. And he said, okay. And this was after the earthquake. He left Haiti. And so Todd said, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, but why are you? coming to the United States. You've already traveled thousands of miles. The guy kind of chuckled and said, well, life's a million times better in the United States. Um, yeah. and, and he's right, I guess, but that's not, you know, that that's not a reason we need to be um, letting people in. I mean, the fact is that if you are truly desperate, you will already have sought protection somewhere else. Now, does that kind of let us off the hook in some sense? Yeah. Uh, because geography is a harsh mistress. We have oceans on both sides. We got Canada, the North, and Mexico is a pretty, by world standards, functional place to the South. Um, so, I, I mean, no, I just don't see that 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 we have much of a there's much of a moral claim that the migrants can make on us. Now, that doesn't mean people should be treated inhumanely, but you know. Borders are borders, and uh, we and asylum policy in particular is an, a, a kind of exception to national sovereignty. It's where we are ceding control over who lives here to someone who wants to come here. In other words, they make the decision, not us. There are, there are instances where that's warranted, but very, very narrow and limited instances. And there's also a moral peril, it seems to me, that if we start just ignoring law that it won't just stay with regard to immigration. It's going to bleed over into other areas of life yep. and law. And people are going to say, well, if, if they don't have to obey the law, why should I obey the law? Why should right. I pay my taxes? Why should I do, uh, you know, whatever it might be? I think there's a terrible moral peril here and it's leading to a sense of anarchy and, and, um, uh, and, tremendous distrust. No, I agree. Uh, I mean, there's a, just as a kind of trivial, but still telling example of that, 
couple of years ago, there was a, um, in suburban Maryland, I'm in suburban Virginia, but DC area, there was a, some house where there were like 15 people living in there. Some of them illegal, none of them related. And it was clear violation of zoning rules, you know, residential zoning rules, different places have different rules, but it's the kind of thing where they say, you know, no more than, you know, three unrelated or four unrelated people allowed to live in a house, that kind of thing. Different places have different rules like that. This is clearly in violation of the rules. Uh, this was Montgomery County. They refused to enforce it because, wow, they're illegal immigrants. So we're not going to apply the law. Yeah, that leads to the uh, the problem of many Americans believing, whether true or not, that uh, they have to do things like get vaccinated, but people who come here in an undocumented way don't. Right. And, and and that also that's true. Yeah, yeah, and that exacerbates the sense. We're yep. beginning to run out of time. There's just so much here, but I want to get probably go through some quick answers, questions, and answers. What part in this crisis do criminal cartels play? The cartels are not usually smuggling the immigrants across the border. What they do is charge a kind of tax for the <laughs> smuggling organizations. Protection? Every, no, not protection, a toll, like, a, like on a highway, because the cartels control every inch of the Mexican side of the border, and it's divided up. You know, they have different turfs. This is our turf. The next section is yours. And so the cartels... Um, uh, charge the smuggling groups money to cross. And in fact, um, there's a former Texas Department of Public Safety guy, state police, Jason Jones, who says that some of these cartels are now making more money from the smuggling fees, the toll they're taking, the tax they're collecting from the, smug from the uh, actual smuggling groups than they are from drugs. So the, it, and which they're making a lot of money from, which they're making a lot of money from. Exactly. So, so yes, the cartels are clearly profiting off of this, but people need to understand of how it works. They're not doing the smuggling themselves. They are charging, uh, charging for access to the U S border. Basically. It sounds like in a casino where if you're playing poker, the house takes a percentage of every pot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, what part in this crisis do non-governmental um, advocacy groups play? Significant part, um, not and not just in the U.S. because advocacy groups, sometimes U.S.-based, other times locally based in Mexico or elsewhere, but funded by the UN and others, play a significant role in helping people along the way. In other words, they're not telling people and moving people to the U.S., but they are clearly facilitating the movement of people to the U.S. border. And then the advocacy groups in the U.S. are often with federal contracts moving people all over the country. In other words, helping them get where they're going. So they're not initiating this, but they are facilitators. And frankly, they're making a lot of money off of it. And, you know, it's easy to uh, sort of reduce everything to materialism. And it's not just that they're in it for the money, but these groups are doing pretty well from doing what they consider to be good. And they're in it for the ideology, as we described as earlier, well. right? It's both. In other words, it's both the, they're making money off it, but they also believe that what they're doing is the right thing to do. A lot of people are becoming quite scared because the border is so porous that, uh, um, terrorists uh, may be coming into the country. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean the the number of people who are on the terrorist watch list who were apprehended by the border patrol is the highest number it's ever been. It was like 170, I think, last year. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but how many people does it take, you know, to blow and up? And how many people weren't caught? Exactly, and that's precisely it. And in fact, it's a lot easier to not get caught now because the border patrol is totally overwhelmed with all of the people turning themselves in because they know they're going to be let go. So that they actually have to strip personnel from the other parts of the border to process these illegal immigrants and release them into the United States. And this is something the uh, cartels actually do get involved in as far as the smuggling goes beyond just collecting attacks is they will often tell smugglers, you're going to take your group of, you know, 200 people across the river here at this time. And you're not going to ask what we're doing five miles upriver where the border patrol isn't able to. So they patrol. use the, the, uh, the migrants as a diversion, kind of a diversion and then they, yeah, to, sn- to get they smuggle across, other things across. Or to get people who aren't turning themselves in across. And so given the, this administration's laxity, if you're not turning yourself in, there's a much higher percentage you're a bad guy. Yeah. You know, maybe previously convicted criminal or terrorist. We, you know, we don't know. That's the whole point is we have no idea. When they've caught these people who are on the terrorist watch list, were they deported? What happened to them? Good question. Uh, they don't tell you on individual cases for the most part what happened to them. I suspect they were deported, but we don't know. Maybe that's a hope. <laughs> yeah, that is a hope. And, you know, along these lines, too, it recently came out. I think Daily Caller got, uh, got hold of an email where Chinese illegal immigrants, whose numbers have gone way up, I mean, it's still from a low level, but it's many, many more than there used to be. For for illegal aliens from China, there used to be a more intensive vetting. They would take their cell phones and download all the data. Who see who were they calling? You know, were they were any of the numbers on their phone come up on a flag of you know whatever of spies or terrorists? They've done away with most of this, and instead of there used to be like 120 questions they would grill them on. Now they ask them five questions and then let them go. So that's another example of how the overwhelming number of people makes it inevitable that you have to water down the process of screening them. It's kind of like, you know, Lucy in the Chocolate Factory, like that scene from, you know, where the I love conveyor Lucy. belt is yeah. moving the candies faster and faster. That's and what she, she ends up not being able to wrap them all and stuffing them in stuffing her mouth her and mouth, that kind of stuff. Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a classic bit, but it's uh, not good when it's, it's what you're describing. Uh, how does the current crisis uh, impact our drug addiction uh, issue? The, um, it, it clearly impacts it, but not because the illegals are, you know, humping backpacks of drugs over necessarily. It's because of what I mentioned earlier. The Border Patrol is so overwhelmed, it's, not, it's unable to do its job in patrolling the border and keeping contraband out. And so it's much easier for uh, cartels to move in drugs than it would be otherwise. You made a distinction between um, uh, being smuggled in and human trafficking, but there is sex trafficking and child trafficking going on too, isn't there? Absolutely there is. Um, there are children who come over uh, on their own, and a lot of them are children in a notional sense. If they're 15, 16, 17, that's often working age in some of these countries. But there are younger kids coming over too on their own, 
uh, sometimes because their parents are here in the U.S. and they're paying somebody to bring them over. But often you will have a, a guy, an adult, who says, oh, yeah, this is my uh, daughter. Uh, they used to do DNA tests to make sure that was true. Biden has gotten rid of the DNA tests because there's just too many people and they can't do it and it's not practical. And why would they lie? It's all kinds of people bringing in kids who aren't theirs. Uh, so, yes, there's clearly there's child trafficking. I mean, remember that you saw the, um, what was the movie? The Sound of Freedom movie that, uh, you know, there was, um, there was child trafficking as part of that phenomenon as well. Bringing in these um, essentially kidnapped kids for uh, sexual exploitation in the U.S. This absolutely happens. In fact, we co-hosted a, um, a conference in December at, with the University of Houston, specifically on human trafficking. Uh, and, you know, there's labor trafficking, there's sex trafficking, but there's it's all kinds of bad stuff happening. And look, it's quasi slavery, isn't it? Yes, it is basically a kind of slavery. And look, the world is a broken place. There's always going to be bad things like this. But Biden's invitation to mass illegal immigration makes it a whole lot harder to root out and identify and root out these kind of problems. I, I'm just going to note that President Biden would say he's not inviting them here. but that's He says your- that, but the smugglers themselves <clears throat> refer to his policies as la invitacion, the invitation in Spanish. One of uh, Todd Benzman, again, spoke to a smuggler, not a kingpin, just a regular guy who brings people across the border, and he just casually refers to it as la invitacion. How has the uh, crisis impacted our medical system? Uh, well, it, um, you were talking about lo- admitting lots of people without health insurance and without the resources to, under- to pay for health insurance or medical care. And so they end up in emergency rooms. They end up at the local level getting, you know, at clinics that are supposed to be for the poor. So it has a clear effect. And then also it does introduce diseases that we have either eliminated or, you know, gotten under control. Tuberculosis is one of the big ones. But there was a recent report that even things like leprosy, um, which we could solve nowadays. It's not like in the Bible anymore, but it's still a disease. Uh, Chagas disease is this parasite that from comes from tropical countries. So, you know, it's a it, it's a serious problem. If that were the only problem, well, then we could deal with it. But it's not. It's it's one of many consequences of this uncontrolled immigration across the southern border. How has the crisis impacted our schools and other civic infrastructures? Schools are especially in the areas where lots of people are going are significantly impacted. New York uh, is, you know, facing huge numbers of kids from um, who either came across the border or maybe have been, you know, more born here, you know, more recently that need, uh, you know, all kinds of basic English language training. They may not have had any school at all back in their own countries. Um, And, you know, these are schools in New York, for instance, that frankly aren't doing a very good job right now, even without immigrants. And so this is just piling on top of that, an extra problem. And, you know, where do they get the money for that? Just apart from the way it degrades the learning experience for other kids in class, because teachers have to teach the, you know, deal with these kids, handholding for the kids, where's the money come from? It comes from local taxation. And, um, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. 
How has the crisis impacted the homelessness issue? Uh, in cities, again, this is especially, you see this in New York, where they have what's called a um, right to shelter law and apparently is reduced before all of this happened, reduced homelessness in New York. Well, you can't, if, if you're getting thousands, tens of thousands of additional people in New York that they then have to put up and pay for in hotels or other shelters, you know, what about the homeless Americans who were here already? I mean, again, it's, it's, it's piling on top of a problem that existed more more exacerbating it it's exacerbating and then you see in the border states people just sitting on the streets because there's no place to for them to be sheltered right which is one of the reasons um governor abbott started that program to bus people to washington and new york and chicago is because these small border towns uh you know mccallan texas and even uvalde you know of uh of that school shooting fame which is pretty close to the border even el paso which is a you know medium-sized city, uh, they can't deal with this. And so that was one of the reasons they're busing them out of the, uh, away from the border. Has the crisis impacted crime generally beyond the drug issue? It's not clear uh, because the issue of immigrant crime is one of those areas where the data is terrible. The, most of the time they don't want to know yeah. what the, you know, what the immigration status of somebody is. And so, you know, there's, there is research that suggests maybe Illegal immigrants are less likely to commit crime. There's other research that suggests actually they're probably more likely to commit crime. We don't, we just, we don't know. I mean, this, interestingly enough, we have not, the the immigration and crime issue hasn't become the kind of problem it is in some European countries where clearly immigration is like indisputably, like in Sweden, causing dramatic increases in crime. Um, we already have a lot of crime, honestly, you know what yeah. I mean? So that it's not, it's not clear that it's having an effect. It might be, but it'll be years before the data is sufficient for us to make a judgment on that. You know, this podcast is about human dignity and our duties and obligations towards each other, uh, human exceptionalism. Right. And the immigration issue, uh, and the reason I brought you on the, on the show, uh, because I think it, it impacts both. It impacts uh, people's dignity and it impacts our duties towards people and their duties towards us. It, right. It's just, uh, I think a, um, invitation to anarchy and yeah. anarchy doesn't suit human exceptionalism at all because then it becomes the po- you know, uh, thriving of the most powerful yeah. and War you might even end up all, in a yeah. situation like with warlords who control areas yeah. like you were talking about the cartels on the border. Yeah. I mean, look, um, we obviously have an obligation to all of God's creatures as human beings, but we also, you know, there are what one philosopher called concentric circles of, ob- of obligation. We have a greater obligation to our fellow countrymen. Um, you know, if, if we're responsible for everybody in the world, we're not responsible for anyone. Uh, we have an obligation to our family members, and then we have a greater one to, you know, people in our community and greater to people. Uh, in our national community than to foreigners. Doesn't mean we have no obligation to somebody just because it's a foreigner. He's still a human being. But uh, even Thomas Aquinas wrote about the necessity of taking care of your own, your own countrymen and your own people. Uh, I mean, actually, uh, wasn't it 
it was didn't St. Paul wrote about that, didn't he? He said uh, someone who doesn't take care of his own family is worse than an unbeliever. Um, this phenomenon works here too. We we do not have the same level of obligation to people who are not part of our national community as we do to our fellow countrymen. And that inability to kind of prioritize and distinguish is one of the things that deforms the immigration debate. Would one of the ways to um, dissuade people from making this incredible journey and dangerous journey uh, be to let them understand that they could not actually thrive uh, by making that trip? In other words, you're not you're you're actually going to protect their safety uh, by uh, letting them understand that you know if they come here, it's not going to be the land of milk and honey as they hope. It seems to me that is important. Is the wall part of that? I mean, uh, President Trump always talked about the wall, the wall, the wall. Um, what do you think about that? Is the wall a part of that process? It's one part of it, but it's a tool is all it is. I mean, people kind of fetishize the wall sometimes. And we're seeing pictures now of people, you know, cut a hole in the wall and they come across. And, uh, you know, that's uh, then they're here. And under these this administration's policies, they get to stay. So um, the important the important goal has to be to reduce the incentive to come here. There's and always that's, the be, humane, that's the humane way to do it. It is a humane way to do it because coming here is physically risky. So all kinds of bad guys along the way, all kinds of people get abused. Women but it's get also raped. very we get raped, you name it. It's but it's also very expensive. So you're mortgaging your uncle's farm to come here. Um because the odds of getting away with it are so high under this administration's policy. If you make clear that no don't do this because if you do, you'll end up back home broke and disappointed. So don't do it and try to, you know, improve the place you're in. Um, and in fact, even in a broader sense, that is more humane because, for instance, from Mexico, we have something like 10% of all the people born in Mexico now live here. Wow. The ones who came are the ones with some more get up and go, obviously. Now, there's still a mismatch for our economy. but they're the people Mexico needed to, you know, at the local level. Not because I'm not talking about Einstein's. I'm talking about an ordinary guy who's the kind of person who will organize his little town against the corrupt mayor or something like that. That kind of change agent. They all left. And that retards the development and the advancement of those kind of places. Because you end up with the old people, the little kids, and the deadbeat brother-in-law as the only people left, and that's not a recipe for success for these developing countries. We hear about something called E-Verify, which is supposed to return us to the idea of you cannot hire somebody who is not here legally. Uh, I don't see a lot of support for that among people who, even people who scream the loudest about uh, uncontrolled immigration. Why do you think that is? Oh, no, it's definitely, I mean, First of all, it exists already. This is an online system. So when you hire somebody, you take their social security and IRS information anyway. This just enables you to use this online system to verify whether it's true. Um, half of new hires are screened through E-Verify already. The problem is it's that. voluntary. So the other mm -hmm. half is where the illegal aliens are. And the um, 
actually, there's a pretty broad consensus, even among Democrats, for E-Verify. The problem is the Democrats add the condition that we're only going to be for it once everybody who's already here is legalized and there's no illegal aliens left. Then we'll be for it. Um, which is, you know, it's a it's a dodge. They're they're just they're lying. Uh, but it's become a, a pretty standard. Uh, I mean, support for it is now pretty standard among people who want to control immigration. For instance, not to go into the weeds, but there's a bill called HR two, which is at the center of this fight between Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill about funding for Ukraine and funding for the border. This is something that's been going on. One of the things that's in that package they're demanding is mandatory E-Verify. And um, Governor DeSantis, for instance, at the beginning of each of his two terms, made a big push in the legislature to make E-Verify mandatory at the state level as a condition of getting a business license. Unfortunately, his opponents were corporate and farm interests in his own party who stymied it. So he got something, but he only got, you know, a couple slices of the loaf rather than the whole thing. So no, E-Verify is definitely going to happen. It's just that, you know, it takes, it takes time because there's resistance to actually stopping illegal immigration. Um, is there anything else that you believe could be done humanely to prevent the uh, ongoing catastrophe and perhaps start to ameliorate some of the consequences? It's a good question. The, the, chief goal has to be to reduce the incentives to come here by detaining illegal immigrants who come across the border because now they're just let go. And the reason they're coming here and making this claim of fear of return is because they know they're going to be let go. If they're not released into the country, fewer people are going to do it. And that's going to require people to be detained, locked up. I mean, it's not great, but that's the way it is. The real world is such as it is in order to get back to a more stable and humane situation at the border. And you said the law already provides that. Already requires it, but they're just ignoring it. Now, so, there's so, so you many- don't need to have comprehensive immigration reform to begin the process that you've just described? Not at all. I mean, under President Trump, look, there's a lot of stuff that l- was left undone, but the border was stabilized under Trump. And what President Biden did was reverse almost every single policy on immigration that Trump had put into place when the transition period between the two administrations was happening. It's what, about three months worth, two and a half months. The Homeland Security people, the incoming ones, met with the people on, you know, the Trump administration people. And the Trump people said, please, we beg you, don't do what your boss promised. It's going to blow up in your face. It's going to be bad for the country, but it's also going to be bad for you guys. It's going to create this political crisis because you're going to end up generating a wave of illegal immigration. And they just ignored them. And they, they got what they asked for. And undoing that is going to be harder than doing it. In other words, building something is always harder than just tearing it down. Yeah. So it's, you know, you're going to have a lot of heart-rending stories and pictures. That's just the way it is, I'm afraid, in order to get to a more stable and humane situation down the road. Well, this has been cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? I've been doing this for almost 30 years, you know? (laughs) Uh, There's a lot more we could talk about, but we're out of time. What next for Mark Recorian? Um, More of this. Uh, You know, we have a, I have my own podcast, so I don't want to 
compete with yours, but no, our no. subjects are uh, usually we should, different. Uh, uh, tell us what the name yeah. of it, and uh, we should uh, link to it uh, uh, on the program notes. It's called Parsing Immigration Policy, and it's on all the usual. You can subscribe to it in all the usual places or on our website. And it's a weekly podcast on immigration, sort of everything immigration. Um, our website's cis.org. And um, this is sort of a more refined thing for people who are really interested, but we run an, a, a border tour every spring. And uh, we got to pay for it. So it's, uh, you know, it's, we take about a dozen people and we're going to Del Rio and Eagle Pass, Texas this That's year, which is where a lot zero, of the action isn't it? is. Yeah, yeah, which is where a lot of the action is now. Yeah. And we'll probably be crossing over to the other side because the cities on the Mexican side, they're actually pretty safe by border standards. They're not big drug areas. Uh, and one of them, I forget which one of the Mexican towns, is where nachos were invented. Ah. So if you want to go and see the place where nachos were invented, as well as see the border. And gain um, a little weight, huh? Yeah, maybe. Uh, so <laughs> cis.org, we have a, a link there for more information. Well, Mark, thank you very much for being on the program. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.